Morning. Morning. How are you? Good to see you again. I'm gonna do uh, the thing I normally do here with like I have some things that, uh, like I've read the text uh, beforehand because I'm a professional. Um, uh, but um, I'm always primarily interested in what is happening already in the room. Somebody say amen. So like I can bring a message and I can tell a story and I can do that and that's cool. Uh, but none of it matters unless I'm tapping into what Jesus Christ is already up to in the community of people. Um, that's really what we're about. Can I get an amen again? So um, I like, I don't think that was happening last I was here. That you say welcome home a lot. Is that a, is that a you thing? I love that. Welcome home. That feels good. Um, the return, the coming back. Um, it's a funny thing. I think it's funny at this point how... Uh, how much of American culture is about getting somewhere and how often we don't recognize, how should I say this? How much, how much of American culture, including American religious practice, is about getting somewhere <laughs> when, like, after all these years, you got nowhere. Uh, <laughs> like, you just keep coming back. The story of God is not a story of getting somewhere, Period. The story of God among God's people is not a story of, of a people who get somewhere. Even the notion, uh, the sort of the slight theological notion at some point you get to heaven, that's not a getting somewhere. That's a returning home to the one who made you. It's always about coming back over and over and over again. So this morning, the, the, the text we're in is, is a text that's about repentance. And you guys have been hanging out in that Isaiah passage or that Isaiah moment about repentance and rest. And uh, the word repentance just gets uh, kind of jacked up when it's situated in a story that's about getting somewhere. Because the way we think about repentance, uh, if we're thinking about getting somewhere, is repentance is a moment where you take a step back, and you take a step back, and then eventually maybe you can get back on the road and keep headed to where you were going. But that's not really what repentance is, and we'll come back to this a lot. Repentance is just re-entering the story you've been in. Just coming back to where you were. Repentance is never about stopping so you can't go forward anymore. It's always about coming back to what's true, what's real, what's whole about you, what's true, what's real, what's whole about Christ, about community. It's always about re-entering the story, which is the point of the entirety of living on this planet, is to come home over and over again. To recognize that we belong in our own bodies, to recognize we belong in our own neighborhoods, to recognize we belong to a story that is already at hand. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. There's nowhere else to get. So we're going to talk about repentance today, but we're going to do so after we read this passage a couple times. So what we're going to do is um, I'm going to try. I believe this thing will work. Um, I'm going to flip through the passage up here, um, and I'm going to ask for two volunteers. Uh, preferably, one of them would be a woman. Um, and then one of them would uh, be a man. Um, that, that's my preference. I don't have a ton of control over that. Um, I mean, I can, yeah, I can try. But uh, I would like to have two volunteers to read through this passage. So let me start doing that. I, can I have two volunteers? One woman, one man to read. What, there's a woman. I need a guy looking for a man. This is always the hard part, literally everywhere I go. This is, like looking for men willing to read publicly is always a trick. Two. There we go. Boom. Fantastic. And the way we'll do this is, um, is you can stand if you want to. You'll read through the passage. Uh, I'll flip through, and we'll get, eventually it gets to a black screen, 
And when it gets to the black screen, we're just going to sit for a moment. And the first time we read through the, through the passage, just pay attention to anything that's going on in your, in your heart, your soul, your guts, your mind. Like what sparks in you. You guys have done this before. I call this, uh, you know, I, I'm leaning this practice called Lectio Divina. Like this is not just about, you know, studying the text. Excuse me. It's not just about studying the text so we know what, like, what the writer of the text was doing. But the writer of the text was doing this on behest of the Spirit of the Lord, who eventually was going to put this text in our lives to draw good things in to and out of us. So right now, this practice is about not what does the text say historically, we can talk about that, but what is going on in you when you hear it. The Word of God is alive and is acting on your spirit as you read it. Can I get an amen? So you're going to pay attention the first time through, like, what's going on in your guts? We'll take a break, kind of, like, let that sit, and then you'll read the second Second time, we'll do the same passage one more time. You get to pay attention again and see if that goes anywhere. And I'll, I'll walk us through both times. I'm going to read it through both times, and then we'll have a little bit of a conversation about what it is that you're hearing, feeling, experiencing in relationship to the text. You ready? Awesome. Actually, you know what? Let me do this. Because is this still on? You didn't turn this off, did you? Because of that. Okay, great. Because of the Zoom people. Because of the Zoom people. Also, just because you have a great voice, and let's make that, you know. <laughs> Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Oops. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. John, we flip there. There you go. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So just let whatever stirred in you, like, stir in you. Pay attention to that. And let's just sit for a moment, and then in a few moments I'll pull the next... Uh, reading up. When you're ready. 
Tom knows back on it. When I'm ready for what? To read. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit there, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all, who are, all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Thank you. So, reading through it a couple times, What'd you notice in you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your brain? And that could be like something that jumped out about the text. It could just be like, here's a line, here's a phrase that leapt out at you, was the kind of highlighted. It could be like a question that came up in you. It could be like a story that was sparked in you. What moved, what got stirred in you, reading through? I felt immense relief. Sorry, we need it for the Zoom. Oh. I felt immense relief knowing that I don't have to hide in shame and mm. guilt. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Relief. That's a great phrase. What else? Um, <clears throat> the first time through as I was reading it, what jumped out at me was, I will confess my sin to the Lord. And there's something about that sort of realization moment like, ah, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and then yeah. the, the second time connected with that was don't be like the dumb beast that has no understanding. It's like, oh, I'll yeah. confess my sin to the Lord. Yes. The sort of simplistic, like, of course. Right. But, yes. but that's the moment when you have that idea that then action follows it. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. I like that. What else? Over there. Come over. Do you guys remember Donahue? Yes. yes. So do I. Yeah. You're the young version. Yes. This idea that shame makes you hide, and the yeah. antidote to that is you're my hiding place. You know? Right? Mm -hmm. That's really good poetry. I love that. Because there isn't, there isn't that sense of, it's not like the, the flip side to shame 
is to just expose everything to everyone. Somebody say amen. Right? I mean, there, and there's a bit of a cultural push there where, like, you know, we don't like, we don't like, <laughs> we don't like other people's hiddenness. We would like to expose everyone else's everything. God forbid it ever be you. But that's not really what the Spirit is inviting us into. It's like, no, no, no. Like, you don't have to expose your everything to everyone. You just need to know, like, I know your everything. So just bring it all to me, and you can get, like, covered up right here in this. I love that poetry. That's beautiful. What else? What else stern in you? What did you see? A couple more. Yeah. I was noticing our spatial relationship to God. Like, it says um, that, um, let me think. First, Oh, I forgot the first one. <laughs> anyway, it kind of goes back and forth. Like his um, his hand is upon us is the second one. But um, yeah, let me just see for a minute. Yeah, his hand was heavy on me at one point. Yeah. But I think it says he covers our sin. Yes. But then his hand is heavy on me. Um, but then. Um, also, he surrounds us with his love. Yes. And it's sort of like this idea of our relationship with him is always so close. Like it reminds me of Psalm 139 where like you go before me and behind me, you hem me in. Yes. But it's like sometimes as we feel it heavy upon us, but sometimes he's surrounding us with our love and it's just like kind of where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Right there and then right here. Let me jump over you. So what leaped out at me was, you know, my denial of sin, I kind of feel like the, the horse with a bit and bridle stuck in that mode and not being free from sin through confessing it. Yeah. So that really spoke to me. That's good. Yeah. Pass that way. In this top quote, I love that he, that God is surrounding me with songs of deliverance, and in the end, our songs rise up to him. Yes. I just love that we speak music. When we're, we're not just confessing sins, we're actually creating music yes. together. Yeah, there is, a, there is a kind of, again, going back to like the poetry of the thing, there is this sort of symphony. And that part of this, part of what I'm getting to today about repentance, part of that does have to do with missteps. Somebody say amen. That your missteps, our missteps, this is David writing. Remember, this is, this is David writing Psalm 32. And like David is known for really the two things. He was the king, and then like he took someone else's wife and had the dude killed. That's what David is known for, right? And it, and we don't need to gloss over how awful some things are in the world, but what we do get to do is recognize, we're talking about being surrounded, recognize how insanely good must the story of Christ be? That as dark as a moment can be, it still plays part in a long, beautiful arc that there's still poetry, there is a place for all of these things as hard or as dark as they might be. How beautiful a story this must be how deep the love of God must actually be. Um, when I was reading through this, um, I was remembering a story of mine. Um, we talk about you know, repentance and rest. We'll come back to that um, 
to that verse uh, from Isaiah that you guys have been in. Um, talk about like, repentance and rest and shame and uh, sin and being a jerk um, and, uh, and growth. And I was like, this, this story just like, it, like, it was like this is the story uh, for me. I, this is, I've been doing this in some way, shape, or form really since I was kind of six. I was, telling, I, was t- I was telling folks this morning, like my daughter, uh, who's four now, her name is Caitlin Quinn, uh, Caitlin Quinn River McRoberts. And um, um, she is a little bit more like me than my son is from personality-wise. Like my, son's, my son is the introvert, I'm not. And uh, <laughs> she's the extrovert. She's, she got, I was telling the folks this morning, like she got uh, in the car with my neighbors. It, it was, it, it, she was allowed to. Uh, she got in the car with the neighbors to go get cookies. And they came back and they, and they were dying laughing. They were like, she, she got in the car and I guess as they left the court, uh, she said, okay, I would like to tell some jokes. Like just, she's back there in her little car seat and she's like, like that's what she says. She's like I, with these two older girls, nine and 12 and the two adults. And she's like, I would like to tell some jokes. And apparently she told jokes for like 15 minutes. And, she, and it was like the one joke I, I mentioned before, the, the joke she led with, she led with the joke. She said, two cannibals are eating a clown. That's the opening line. And the one cannibal says to the other, does this taste funny to you? That's the opening, like, like talk about setting a tone. How do prisoners call each other? They use cell phones. That was one of the other jokes. So she's a lot like me. I've been doing that. Like, I remember being that kid. I remember being, like, my mom tells stories of, like, at Christmas party, I was six years old, and, like, I got up on the coffee table and started telling jokes that I was making up. They're all terrible jokes. So I've been doing this for a long time. This is in my skin. Like this is, this is I'm a communicator, I'm a storyteller. Um, and there was a season uh, in my life, uh, it was, and I'm gonna tell you the story in a little bit, in which um, I thought that um, the, the things that were not good about me would prevent me from doing the things I was best at. Let me say that again. There was a season in my life, and this has come around a few times, when I thought like, the things that were not good about me would probably keep me from doing the things I was best at. So, um, and the, the long story, I'm telling you the ending before I get into it, the long story is that like, even those moments uh, are moments in which I get to repent I get to come back like David. I get to come back and re-enter the story that God has always been writing, including the better of my gifts and talents. So I did a lot of theater in high school, duh. And um, I wasn't bad at it. I was actually pretty okay at it. Um, and so my, my drama coach would enter me into like competitions, which is, talk, talk about like high-level geekery. Uh, like, I'm gonna drama off. Uh, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mo- monologue your face off. Like I, that was me. Like I didn't, I didn't do football. Uh, I did theater. Um, I was wearing tights. Uh, so were the football players, but I was better at what I was doing. Um, and um, when, uh, and I developed a, a pretty significant ego. I mean, I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old. I've realized that I was good at something, and I got pretty cocky about it. 
And, it, uh, and my cockiness preceded me. So I was, uh, at one point, it was the Diablo Valley College would host an annual thing for like local uh, drama groups. And Clayton Valley High School from Concord, California, it was me. Uh, we had a rival in College Park High School from Pleasant Hill. And uh, I was in this competition. Uh, I don't, this, this is a showcase, maybe not a competition. The other one was a competition. And I, I walked out on the stage, and my, friend, uh, my friends Jeff and JT and Dax were all sitting there, like towards the back row, because we were all back sitters, um, to the, the, there in support of me. And in front of them was the drama uh, troupe from College Park High School. And Jeff uh, could not wait to tell me this story uh, once I was done with my monologue, I got out, did this monologue from a play called The End of the World as We Know It. I was very into it. I'm an Enneagram 4. And uh, he, he says, he comes to me afterwards. He goes, Justin, I, I can't wait to tell you this. I said, What's, he goes, so the college park kids were sitting in front of us, and they recognized you when you walked out on the stage. I was like, oh, wow, cool. And so he goes, yeah, the one kid says to the other, hey, isn't that that McRoberts kid? And the other kid goes, yeah, that is him. And the first kid goes, I've heard he's really good. And the second kid goes, I heard he's a bleepity bleep bleep bleep. <laughs> and I waited for the part of the story where Jeff defended my honor. That didn't happen. Uh, it just remained silent because he was like, yeah, you kind of are. Like, it's just like, it was like he's arrogant, he's a jerk. So that was me. Jeff's like, yeah, people know that you're good at what you do. They also think you're a jerk. You want to go to lunch? That was the conversation. <laughs> Fast forward, um, it's like a year and a half or so later. I'm a junior. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with my life. I'm pretty sure I want to act. It's, I'm, you know, it's the thing I want to do. I want to be in front of people. I want to do this thing. So I'm in a Shakespeare competition, which like if, if just being in a drama competition is top shelf geekery, Shakespeare competition is like a whole other level of like geekery. Like just so geek, so geek. I'm in this Shakespeare competition, and you're required to, to memorize and recite one of Shakespeare's sonnets, and then you pick from a list of monologues. They give you, like, there were like 10 or 12 to choose from. You couldn't just pick one. There were like 10 or 12 to choose from. I selected um, a, uh, a piece from, uh, from Richard II, which <laughs> as a play, it's like this really dark, twisted play, and I was listening to a lot of The Cure. So it was very, like, I'm going to do this dark brooding thing. Um, and a lot of students picked this, uh, the prologue to Henry V, because Kenneth Branagh, who's a brilliant actor, had just done a theatrical production, which is brilliant. If you've not seen Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, it's a beautiful, wonderful, incredible movie. He does a great Henry. So a lot of students had picked <laughs> this prologue to Henry V, like a lot. So there was at Ohlone College, I think is where it was, in Fremont. Um, and um, there were hundreds of students from all over California. It was a California Shakes competition. It started on Friday, went through Saturday, and the finals were on Sunday. So at the end of Friday, I look, and like, I've gotten through the first two rounds. There were another there, there's another round on Saturday morning, and then a big break. And I'm figuring, like, I'm probably going to get out at some point on Saturday morning, because there are only like 30, 20 students left. I get through the next round, which means I go to the semifinals. And the semifinals are on Saturday night. I'm feeling really good about myself. 
And again, like I'm the one kid that's doing the Richard II one because it's dark and twisted. And like there are lots of students doing Henry V. So we listen to Henry V over and over again. And I get through and I'm going to Sunday morning. I'm in the finals. There are seven students, seven. So I get there on Sunday morning and uh, I show up and I, I go, I think, fourth. Three of the students before me in the finals were doing the prologue to Henry V, three of four. So I get up. <laughs> I hate this story. Um, I really do. Like this, this is one of those, like, like I can tell the story and I can laugh at myself, but there still is like this twinge. You, you can tell these stories about yourself. And there's this twinge of like, gosh, oh, it feels like pulling my eyes out. I get up and I say, um, this is what you do. You walk up and say, uh, my name is Justin McRoberts. I'm from Clayton Valley High School. And uh, I will be performing this, you know, you know, the Henry, uh, whatever. And so instead of saying I was performing <laughs> Richard II, I got up and I said, my name is Justin McRoberts. I'm from Clayton Valley High School. And I will be performing the prologue to Henry V. And then I, and I paused. I said, I'm just kidding. Everybody else is. And then I turned around. That was my comment. Everyone else is performing. So I turned around and got into character, did this whole thing. Um, I did not win. A kid named uh, Adrian won. Adrian was brilliant. Adrian was that kid like all weekend. Folks were like, he was insanely good. So they, you know, they do the thing. He gets up and they hand him this plaque and then they hand him this other this, this piece of paper because one of the, one of the things you got wasn't just the plaque and a medal and this trophy. You got a full ride scholarship to NYU to go study theater, which I didn't know because I wasn't paying attention. I'm like. I'm just going to go do drama. So I was so into me that I wasn't paying attention. Like, this is what you get, you full art scholarship. So uh, great, you know, good job, Adrian. Awesome. Monday, Tom Wills, who's my drama coach and a hero of mine, um, says during drama class, he said, can you come visit me after class at lunch? I said, sure. He goes, I just want to talk about the weekend. So sure, awesome. So I come in. He's like, how'd you feel? I said, felt great. It was tons of fun. Felt like you did really well. He goes, yeah, you did really, really well. I was really proud of you for the most part. I said, okay. I said, I'm sorry I didn't win. The kid's really good. He goes, yeah, Adrian's very good. He goes, so I wasn't supposed to do this, but I went and I got your, I got, I went and got your critique sheets from the judges. I said, are you serious? Like, you're not supposed to get the critique sheets. Students are not supposed to see these. These are like directors from like, LA and Chicago and New York. He goes, yeah, I, I want to kind of show you your critique. She says, oh, sure. He goes, so um, this judge, this, he goes, I want you to flip through to the third, there were five judges, third judge's critiques. Should flip through. Um, and as I'm flipping through, he goes, uh, just let you know, I mean, you, you scored, there were 60 possible points. I want to let you know, you scored a 56. I said, what? Are you serious? Yeah, well, yeah, Adrian scored a 58, almost a perfect score. I was like, dang, I did pretty well. He goes, yeah. He goes, keep flipping. So I get to the third judge's critiques. And they had all these things, and down the bottom in a big red marker, it says three-point deduction for being a smartass. I had one. But I was so caught up in this thing being about me that I lost. And that story, um, that moment, like, 
Wade talk about like things who was talking about like things weighing heavily on you who was talking about like like the hand of the Lord weighing heavily on you like this is before I was a Christian like that story like I felt you got you've experienced this where like you do something and you're caught or you do something and go sideways and it just sits on you for a long time because not only had I done that and like someone had like called me out in public like I loved Tom Wills like his approval meant everything to me. Like this was the place in drama that I felt like the most alive. He was the great, he was the gatekeeper. He was the person who like put me in plays and cast me and coached me. Like, and here he is. I had disappointed him. There were directors from New York who think that Tom Wills' students are jerks. Like I had shamed the program and just weighed on my shoulders for a long time. Um, like, I got off the stage. Like, I, I stopped. I didn't do theater the back half of my senior year. I did, like, a couple things my, like, in college, but I moved completely away from, from performance stuff. And I recognize now it's because I was like, I'm, I, I won't handle it. Like, I won't do it well. Um... And during that time, like Tom would eventually kind of would, you know, occasionally check in on me. Like, what are you up to? What are you doing with your life? Are you on the stage again? No. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to do youth ministry stuff. And like, I loved it. I loved teaching. Um, and I loved doing youth ministry, but it wasn't this thing that was in my guts. I didn't want to do the thing that was in my guts because I was afraid that I was going to ruin it. Um, and then uh, this moment. Tom passed away a few years ago. Cancer. My friend Jeff Hagerstrand, remember the kid from the first part of the story? Still a friend. <clears throat> My friend Jeff Hagerstrand helped organize the memorial service, and his main contribution was organizing a performance by several of Tom's former students. As Tom had done more than two decades earlier, Jeff selected me, along with several other students from various phases of Tom's career to represent and honor Tom's storied and beloved drama program at Clayton Valley High School. Jeff divided up a, a familiar speech from Shakespeare's As You Like It, and a dozen or so of us read short selections. It's likely you've heard some uh, at least someone somewhere make reference to the speech. It begins, all the world's a stage. The character Jacques then goes on to describe the phases of life from birth through childhood and youth and ultimately one's, one's own death. Jeff had handed out our assigned lines a few days prior, which gave me time to think about how I would deliver my lines. And as the morning approached, I was racked with nerves. I didn't want to disappoint Tom again. That morning, I ran into Tom's wife and his kids in the courtyard outside. Around them were a few students I'd acted with and several whose performances I'd seen since I graduated. Here was this whole world of people who loved this man, and in return for the love that he'd given them as a husband, father, a director, as a coach, they'd showed up to honor him. I wanted to do that well. We walked in together. Jeff placed us all around the room for effect. 
And as the opening lines of our monologue bounced around the architecture, I started remembering things Tom regularly told me about delivering lines of text and speaking in front of people. Honestly, it's probably the clearest I'd ever heard Tom's voice in my mind. Remember to breathe, Tom would say. And the first former student began, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. Then Tom in my head again, think about your character's audience, not yours. And then another student, his acts being seven stages, at first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow, and then Tom again, don't choke the lines with your performance, let them breathe. <laughs> and I heard someone else from across the room. And then the soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking bubble reputation. And then Tom again in my mind, relax. Don't be in a hurry. No one here is in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Another actor. The sixth stage shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side his youthful hose well-salved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. And finally, it was my turn. I found myself desperately wanting to avoid being seen, noticed, and heard. A strange turn to take for a lifelong performer. And I heard Tom again in my mind, stand up, stand straight, speak clearly. Last scene of all, I said, that ends this strange and eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. I stepped back and heard a young voice from across the room read sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. The room was still and silent for a long time. Nobody was looking at me. No one was thinking about whether I'd done a good job, not even Jeff. No one in the room was thinking about me at all. I really liked that feeling. I might have even loved it. The feeling of having been part of something beautiful. Most of those in the room were either staring at, through the windows or staring at, the, at their feet. And while I can't say for sure, I'd be willing to bet they were mostly thinking about either their own journey or about Tom Wills, whose legacy was captured and embodied by that group of women and men aged 16 to 43 who just recited a piece about the tragic reality that binds most of the world's great art together, that life, after all of its many stages, eventually ends. After a light applause moved through the room and then faded like a brief soft rain, I realized that reciting Jacques' speech that morning, along with several CV drama alumni, had been my most satisfying and fulfilling performance. I was part of Tom Wills' legacy as the director of a storied and beloved Clayton Valley High School drama program. I honored Tom by taking what he had built into me seriously and, taking, and making something beautiful with it, as opposed to taking his work, for, uh, his work for and in me for granted and just making myself look good. What a sacred space in which to give away some of the gifts and talents I've been given. To repent, to recognize our faults, 
to recognize the places we misstep, to recognize, in fact, the, the, the character traits in us that cause us to step on others, that cause us to sabotage our own selves. To repent of those things is never just about saying, like, I'm a bad person and I don't want to be anymore. It's never about that. That's an element of it. Guilt can be a decent motivator, but repentance, true repentance, the kind of repentance we read in Isaiah, and repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Most of the ways we repent are still so incredibly self-focused because it is about getting myself right. It's about self-care. It's about feeling better about myself so I don't feel as guilty about the ways in which I'm a jerk. Someone say amen. That's most of what the culture around us means about repentance. But when the Bible talks about repentance, it's about coming back to this beautiful story that you are a part of and you don't really get a choice about that. That God is weaving together this incredible, wonderful story in which even your shortcomings play a part. So if you would simply crack your heart open and allow him to see you, to be folded into his goodness, bring all of it to me. Don't repent and show up and feel awful Repent and come back home and realize that your whole life is part of the good work that I'm doing. I came back to a place in which, like, these gifts that I've been given, these things that, that other people have built into me, are best used as I bless others with it, which is exactly what Tom was wanting me to do. It wasn't just that I was a jerk in front of people. It wasn't just that I was about myself is that I was dishonoring Tom's legacy. I was dishonoring the program. I wasn't allowing myself to be part of the story I was actually in because I was so self-interested. Repentance for me in that context and in most contexts has always had to do with coming back to the story I'm in. The story we're in is really good. Really, really good. And may we be not so focused on our capacity or, or potentiality to ruin that story, because you can't. You can come home at any point and always be part of it. Um, we're going to go to a time of communion, uh, which is an act of repentance. And I love that we do that regularly here. I like that you come in and you say, welcome home. And I like that the Eucharist is a regular part of practice here because we come back to this story in which, yes, even violence and death itself play a key role in the redemptive arc of the universe. Somebody say amen. amen. That there is no dark thing in the world, much less in you, that does not in some way or shape or form get folded into the grand, beautiful story of God. So we come back to the story of Christ through the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus, the violent act perpetrated on him that God wove into the fabric of the universe to bring about salvation for those he loved. Um, and maybe there's a particular thing stirring in you um, about, you know, a way you're tripping up your own life. As you come to the table, um, come to the table with this in your mind that, like you repent, you come back, and then you just rest in the goodness of God. You don't repent and then get to work making yourself better. Someone say amen. You repent and then you rest in the goodness of God whose story you're already a part of. On the night that he was betrayed by one of his best friends, 
Jesus broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. When you drink this, when you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. When you're ready, come to the table.